Please be seated. I'm a big fan of extroverts. I'm one. I'm pretty sure Peter's one. You know us types, we speak before we think. Or perhaps more accurately, extroverts speak in order to figure out exactly what they are thinking. And that's our friend Peter this morning, who we see today in conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Last week, Peter made a crystal clear statement, if you recall, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Bing, 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 Jesus says, you got it. You got it. And it's all great, and Jesus gives Peter this great responsibility and place in God's plan to bring shalom to God's world. But today's gospel is the rest of the conversation. And Jesus says, okay, so you, you see me clearly, I think, and this is what this means. And Peter says, no way. And Jesus says, yes way except a little bit stronger language. And please don't get in my way, and my way is not going to be easy. And then he goes on to tell about his way. And you probably remember that the early followers of Jesus were called people of the way. And this way involves seeing as clearly and as honestly as we can the truth about Jesus and the truth about ourselves. And as Jesus says in his response to Peter and the rest of the disciples and now to us by extension, that truth involves the cross. And it's not so much the cross that we wear around our neck or the cross that some of us have on rings or that walks in the procession or adorns many of our churches and our paschal candle. While that cross is important, that cross wasn't around yet when Jesus said these words, and so maybe the cross could be something else. Caroline Lewis, who writes a column called Working Preacher, and she exhorts preachers every week in different ideas, and she wrote this this past week. Before the cross became equated with salvation and a symbol for a religion, it denoted something too often overlooked in our theological machinations. It marked a moment when the paths of life were not fixed, when the direction of how to be in the world was less than certain, when God seemed to be rerouting the future. That's lovely, isn't it? Bit scary, though. And so we have this need, she says, to systemize our theology, which is important in the establishing of a religion and a, or a church identity, she says, but we have forgotten how wonderfully unstable the cross first was. Before the cross was something in which to believe, it was a moment in time. A moment in the life of the first disciples when they learned how to believe. It's that moment when you catch a glimpse of what life calling yourself a Christian really means and makes you hesitate. The moment when you are told that the life you thought you wanted, planned for, prayed for, 
was not the life that God had in mind for you. Hence Peter's no way. The moment when you might have to choose whether or not you are willing to have something else or someone else have more control over your life than you do. We have these moments in our lives over and over again, a lifetime of moments to ask ourselves, who is Jesus and what does it mean for our lives? And like Peter, we may think that we see God clearly, but we usually don't. We are usually brought to the cross, to the moment when we lose our lives, when we do indeed take up our cross, as Jesus talks about in the gospel, when we see God and ourselves clearly. We had another such moment this week. If you had the misfortune to read the Nashville Statement, and if you haven't read it, don't bother. But if you have or haven't, It was a statement that came out of the gathering of the Society of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I think, that happened in Nashville. There's a preamble and 14 articles, and the articles are a series of affirmations and denials. We affirm yada, 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 and we deny yada, yada, yada. And they are regarding human sexuality, gender identity, transgender, all kinds of things. It's awful. It's blatant homophobia, transphobia, and every other phobia around all of those people. And it would like to squash who the queer community is and what they have to offer God's world and the church. It's completely contrary to my understanding of the gospel and God's love and embrace for all, and it was written and signed by a coalition of evangelical leaders, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in my opinion, it is is an example of when, like Peter, we think we know exactly who God is, who Jesus is, and what that looks like for any given cross moment in our lives. And I stand before you this morning and confess that at one point in my faith journey, I would have been tempted to sign that statement. But there were folks in my life that took their moment, took up their cross, had seen that Jesus might be a bit bigger than what I thought Jesus was. And so when I went to General Theological Seminary to be the vanguard of orthodoxy and evangelicalism, I learned a lot. I learned in a friendship from my friend Paul, a gay man who loved me, studied with me, shared his life with me. I met his family. He met my family. He was an Anglo-Catholic. I was not. We learned a lot from each other. And then I had two seminary professors, one a gay man and one a lesbian, who, although we did not share the same theological understandings of human sexuality, were kind and decent and loving to me. Their willingness to deny themselves and lose their life for the sake of gospel, and in that instant maybe for my sake, helped me see Jesus more clearly. They taught me about how to believe. 
It's not that Jesus changes or God changes. One of the great little passages in the second book in the Chronicles of Narnia is when Lucy goes back to Narnia and she sees Aslan, who's the Jesus figure in the story, as you know, and she says, Aslan, you've changed. He says, I haven't changed, just how you see me is changing. But there's a second piece to this way of Jesus of the cross. It's just not about seeing that God might be different than we are or different than how we perceive God, but it's about seeing ourselves clearly, our true selves, as opposed to what some psychologists and others would say is our false selves or our ego. So here's the best news of the morning. Your true self, a beloved, beloved, beloved child of God. That is your true self. Your false self and my false self rear their ugly heads when we get drawn away from that understanding of who we are and our hurts and our family of origin issues and our need to be right and our need to be in control start to ooze out. We all know what that looks like. For Peter, it was this moment of forgetting who he was, that he was loved by God and loved by Jesus And he became afraid, and he wanted Jesus to fit in this box that would work for him. It became about him. It's not about Peter, at least his false self and his ego, and it's not about us. One of my favorite bumper stickers is, Remember, only one seven billionth of this is really about you. Used to be six but now it's seven. When we live out of our true selves, rooted and wrapped in the knowledge and experience of being beloved children of God, we can indeed deny ourselves, lose our lives, take up our cross, and help make God's dream for the world a continued reality. This is the third time I've preached in this pulpit, two weeks ago and once in 2004. It was for a funeral of a friend of mine and a mentor, John Kerner. Some of you knew him. And John was a big guy around the diocese and uh, was a stewardship person for the diocese, but he was also the senior warden and stewardship person at my first parish where I was the associate. And every year he'd take me out to lunch and tell me some of the things I'd done well that year and some of the things that I needed to work on for the next year. Everybody needs a John Kerner in their life, not just clergy. John got very sick. He had leukemia. And and, um, before he started to get sick and decline, he had helped us uh, vision and imagine uh, what more space would be like and some changes in our building and a capital campaign. And you know about all that stuff. It's so much fun, right? John was a steadfast and fearless leader. And right as things were sort of wrapping up, because you know with construction there's always that sort of wrapping up, John got gravely ill and was in intensive care. And I went to see him and be with him and pray with him. And we were talking about his life and all kinds of things and Saint uh, Good Shepherd and how it was doing. And John looked at me and he said, I kind of feel like Moses. I've gotten to the Jordan River, but I'm not going to get across and see all of this come to fruition. 
and I'm okay with that. And he was right. He didn't, but he prepared a lot of other people to do that. John got it. It wasn't about him. His understanding of Jesus and of himself was pretty darn clear in his final moments, in his cross moment as his life on this earth was ending. He saw clearly. He lived his whole life that way, and I don't think we have to be in our last days to see God and ourselves clearly. Every day, every moment is a time and an opportunity. Today, this day, for you and I, the cross is not only a symbol, but a moment of time where we are being invited. This is an invitation. It's not a command. If you look at the gospel, Jesus says, if any want to be my followers... This is an invitation. We are being invited to be as clear as we can with open eyes and open hearts and open hands about who Jesus is and who we are as his followers. May we have the love and the grace to respond to that invitation. Amen.